Judges 6 and 7 is all about Gideon. So we're going to look at bits and pieces from the story um, uh, and not read the whole thing, otherwise we'll be here half the morning. Um, And we'll start off with the beginning. I've got this pointer, and um, whenever you get the pointer, you always think, I must point at the screen, of course. It's not there, it's at the computer. (laughs) Right. The background. Judges, this is the beginning of Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountains, clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out, to the Lord for help. The Midianites arrived, mob-handed. They trashed the crops, they slaughtered the animals, they took what they wanted, and then left on their getaway camels. It was a smash-and-grab raid, and they left devastation behind them. And it wasn't just a one-off. It didn't just happen once. It was a regular occurrence over seven long, hard years, and the Israelites had to hide just to survive. And this was all because the Israelites had stopped following God and turned to worshipping other gods. And the Bible reminds us that there are consequences of not putting him first. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 13, it talks about, uh, the Lord says, the Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. However, there's always a but. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you, all these curses will come upon you. And there's a long list. And one of them is, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And that's what was happening here. Israel was being defeated before its enemies. And eventually, the Israelites cried out for help. And God put his plan into action. And... um, At the center of God's plan was a man called Gideon. And we have a look at uh, God meeting Gideon. Yes, that way. And uh, it says in verse 11 of uh, chapter 6, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Now, Gideon was hiding in a winepress. A winepress was a hole in the ground um, that you use to uh, create wine. And he was hiding in the hole and threshing the wheat. And threshing the wheat meant you took the wheat and you, you flailed it and you threw it up in the air and the wind would take away the chaff and leave you with uh, the good stuff, the stuff you needed to to bake the bread. And yet he was hiding. All all the Midianites could see was maybe the wheat flying into the air every now and then, um, and they didn't see uh, Gideon. And yet when God saw him, when the angel of the Lord saw him, he starts off with, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. And 
Gideon did not look like a superhero. He didn't look like the man you would expect to be chosen to fight against the Midianites. He was hiding. He didn't seem the obvious candidate. And the angel of the Lord came and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And the key was, this is how God saw him. This is how God saw who he was called to be. And God sees us as we are called to be, as we can be. He sees us not as the flawed human beings that we are sometimes, but who we're destined to be in Christ. And Gideon continues his conversation. And he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you that is talking to me. And this is a very strange conversation, because Gideon does not appear to be demonstrating at this point, great faith. And the Lord, but the Lord says, after all the complaints that Gideon comes out with and uh, the questions, God says, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. A very strange conversation. Gideon is struggling to realize who it is that he's speaking to. And he keeps talking about the negative things. He was a man of contradictions. God didn't call Gideon because he was successful and gifted. He called Gideon because of who he knew he could be. And he, the Lord said, I will be with you. You will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. God is saying, I'm not relying on you to do it yourself, but I will be with you. If you rely on me, you can do it. Even then, it takes Gideon some time to believe. And if you look in the story after this, he asks for a sign and he brings out um, gifts uh, to uh, the angel of the Lord and they're consumed by fire. So God gives him a sign. I love the story of Gideon. I can identify with Gideon. He was a man who had doubts. He was a man who said he was the smallest, um, uh, the least person from the smallest tribe. He said, I'm nobody. And yet, that's the very people that God chooses. We may not be superheroes, we may doubt ourselves. We may be aware of our own failings and limitations. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The foolish things, that's us. Um, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. If you think you're not good enough, you're the very person that God needs, that God wants to use. Because if you, th if you do think you're smart and talented and someone special in your own eyes, then God has more of a problem. 
our availability is so much more important than our ability. Even when we feel we can't do it ourselves, with God, anything is possible. I remember when I was at school, and um, that was a long time ago. I went to a boys' grammar school in Stevenage in, uh, in England, and I started there the year that England won the World Cup, uh, some time ago, 1966. I remember the goals, I remember watching Jeff Hurst's hat-trick, although I have to say that if VAR and goal line technology had been available then, the result could have been so different. Anyway, <laughs> moving on, as a Scotsman, um, anyway, moving on, um, in school I was always very quiet, um, I was a quiet child, um, I was the nerdy one who played in the school chess team and uh, I wasn't that great at sport. Um, it was a family thing. Um, we were not a sporty family. Uh, my brother disliked playing rugby even more than I did, and he was two years older, and it's not surprising he didn't like rugby, because one day um, he went out to uh, play rugby during the games period, and he leaned on the goalpost waiting for the match to start, and the crossbar, which hadn't been properly secured, fell on him. And it fell to the ground, and it hit him on the head. Now, it didn't hit him square on, otherwise he wouldn't be here, but it gave him a glancing blow. There was blood everywhere. He had to go to hospital. Um, thankfully, there was no skull fracture. Um, you know, rugby has its fair share of injuries, but this is one of the more unusual ones. <laughs> anyway, I think it proves we were not a sporty family. Um, what I noticed when I went to school was that how some teachers were able to keep classes in order and others struggled to uh, maintain any classroom discipline at all. And some of my classmates, who were more rowdy than I was, seemed to have the ability to spot a weakness in any teacher. It was like a form of radar. They just knew it from the first few minutes when the teacher came into the class. And then they would uh, interrupt, cause trouble, encourage each other, hunt in a pack. At one end of the spectrum, we had a teacher who arrived to teach his RE in the fourth year. And uh, it turned out later he was just returning from a nervous breakdown. Um, it didn't end well. Um, he lasted about two or three weeks. It didn't help that his name was Mr. Big. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum was our German teacher, Mr. Hogg, who could terrify anyone. Um, and if he stepped out of line, he was ruthless. He was known to us pupils by his name, translated into German, Herr Schwein. <laughs> I remember deciding at that time that teaching was not for me. I always hated being the center of attention, and the idea of standing up in front of people just appalled me. Um, and I remember deciding, and I said to myself, I will never, ever teach. Decision made, no problem. All done. The problem was that God had other plans. And uh, I grew up in the era of James Bond movies, do you remember? Uh, and Sean Connery was the first great James Bond. And the last time he uh, was in a film as James Bond, the name was Never Say Never Again. And Never Say Never Again is great advice to us Christians when we make choices, because whenever we say to God, never, it's just a challenge. Let's find out what God wants first before we make our decisions. 
So after I became a Christian, I moved to Northern Ireland to marry Linda, and we went to a fellowship run by uh, Michael Gurner's father, Keith. And one day, Keith asked me to speak in church because he said God had spoken to him. I was less convinced. At first, I didn't agree. I put him off. I was too self-conscious. It wasn't for me. It was way beyond my comfort zone. I was, um, but he kept asking. And eventually, reluctantly, I said yes. And the first time I spoke was in front of a handful of people. But I was so nervous, I spoke at about 100 miles an hour. I missed out at least half of what I had to say, and I finished in about five minutes. But Keith just kept on asking me to speak. And I learned that speaking wasn't all about me, but it was about God. It wasn't what, it wasn't what I wanted, it was what he wanted. And when you listen to what he wanted to say, you had to ignore the negative thoughts and feelings that you always have when you stand up in front of people. There's a great quotation from a Samuel Beckett play, which is used quite a lot these days. It says, ever tried, <clears throat> ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. What I like about church is that we get the space to try new things. We get the space to try, sometimes fail, and then to improve and to get better. And God's plan for me was a blessing because having got the experience of speaking in church over a period of time, uh, I was able to get a job as a lecturer and something I had never ever expected to do. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. God's ideas and plans are so much better than our ideas and plans. Let's find out what they are. So getting back to Gideon's story. Gideon had been called by God. God said, this is who you are. He said that you are a great warrior and I have a plan for you. Oop, wrong way. Got there. So God gave Gideon a starter for 10, as they say in University Challenge, to test him and to stretch his faith. And we see here it says, the same night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, uh, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and, Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of, of this height. Use the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down and offer the second bull as an offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did what the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. Now, Gideon did it at night because he still had reservations. He was still concerned, but he did it. He was still in wine press mode, so he came at night and he did it. And he built an altar to the Lord. He may have been scared to do it in daylight, but at least he actually did it. Faith happens when we allow our trust in God to get bigger than our fears and our past experiences. Despite his nerves, Gideon did what God asked. And of course, the people of the town were furious, and when they found out who had destroyed their idol, they came to Gideon's house, and they wanted to kill him. But his father bailed him out, and he said, if Baal is really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So Gideon survived that one. And then the main challenge came into view. 
final showdown. It says, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. This was it. It was the big showdown. The gunfight at the OK Corral, Luke Skywalker Walker versus Darth Vader, Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty at the Reichenbach Falls, whatever your favorite showdown is, this was it. But God turned on the turbochargers. His spirit comes upon Gideon. And it says, then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. And he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezerites, that's the locals, to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, that's his own tribe, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, that's the next door tribes, um, so that they too went up to meet them. And even now, Gideon wasn't sure, and if we look at, look at the story in the Bible, and it's a, it's a great story, and you should have a read of it afterwards, um, you see that he asked, twice, he asked God twice for a sign. He was still not quite sure that this was the right thing. And what gets me is how God shows amazing patience with Gideon, despite his nerves, despite his concerns. And he gave, uh, God gave him signs twice. And God shows the same amazing patience with us, because we must be very frustrating to God, the way we get on sometimes. And yet, just like, you know, with when you have young children, and you need patience with young children because they do all sorts of things, God shows that same level of patience to us. Anyway, um, Gideon sent out the word, and 32,000 men show up from the four tribes. Uh, and he must have thought, well, this is it. We can't lose now. Look at all these men. But God had to show that he was the one who, who was going to win the victory. So God said, there's too many. And 22,000 got sent home because they were nervous. And then after that, they did a drinking test. Um, and, and a whole load more were sent home such that there were only 300 left to do the job. And the odds seemed to be really stacked against Gideon on a human level. But once again, Gideon trusted God instead of his own fears. And this is the result. And we see the victory that was won. And it's in chapter 7. Uh, verse 19. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets, which were they were to blow. And then they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. When each man, uh, while each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, carrying out, uh, crying out sorry, as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Malola near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. God won the victory himself. He used a form of psychological warfare. If you read the uh, the passage just before I was reading, you'll find that he previously gave enemies, the enemies, uh, dreams of impending disaster. 
And so early in the morning, when the 300 men got up, uh, it was still dark, they divided into three groups, they surrounded the camp, they blew the trumpets, they revealed their flaming torches, and they shouted, and the enemy was in utter confusion and terror, and they began killing each other, and then they fled. And then when God had won the victory, Gideon called out the men from all the other tribes to finish off the fleeing enemy. The story of Gideon is a wonderful story of victory out of defeat. And God is in the same business today. God used Gideon, a man who thought he was insignificant, to spearhead the victory. And I believe God is speaking to some people here today and calling you to something new. He has things for you to do. Listen to what God says about you and how he sees you and don't think of yourself the way you see yourself. It doesn't matter if you think you're small or you messed up before, God's calling is still on the table. There's a lovely verse in Romans chapter 11 and 29. It says God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That means God doesn't change his mind. When he calls, however badly things have gone before, the call is still on the table. So, thank you.